0: Ching.
1: children's programming
2: welcome back to children's programming the only podcast that exists in the world
0: yes the only one in the world the the prime example of all podcasting on this planet
2: the prime human achievement in all of recorded history i think
0: truly i i, I tend to agree
2: i mean great pyramids sphinx Great Wall of China. Children's children's Programming.
0: programming. 100%. And yeah, we're on episode number 22 now. Uh, This is the first time we've been together since episode one because coronavirus has destroyed the planet. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it's a great way to be back here now to welcome our uh, our first guest since we've been all together again. Um, Words can't describe and introduce him well enough. Uh, The Master Sensei, uh matt's fan extraordinaire um savage dj audio extraordinaire master editor
2: absolute legend of his field
0: suit game on point mr mark Carnseha. seha did i say it right you got
2: it you did got I get it. it okay yeah yeah gotcha. you
0: know it's close enough it's yeah. an
2: honor to have you on sir yes
1: thank you for having me on the show man i'm i'm, I'm very impressed that you guys are up to episode number 22 so, uh, so am I. Congratulations on that.
2: I didn't think we'd make it past five episodes. <laughs> you guys, are
1: you guys planning on having like some kind of like ceremony once you hit twenty five? We I mean, should. Is that, right? is that a
0: significant? Uh, I mean, we we could do the trip to uh to Jersey because yeah. our boy Kevin Smith's bringing his movies pop up to Jersey at some point soon. So we might do a mobile uh, episode to do that.
1: Yeah, I would say that for number fifty or one hundred. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: Well, we can't do it in fifth year 100 because that's the, the nearest thing yeah. that's coming soon. So, so I mean, I don't think we should, ce- yeah, like you don't want to celebrate until you get to, you know, at least half to 100 or, you know, something like that. It's
2: up to you. I mean, I'm always down for a party, you know. I mean, that. every
0: episode is a celebration, so that's, that's all good. <laughs> so, how have you been uh, surviving this whole thing? Cause-
2: Pretty good.
1: Uh, um, I was just kind of disappointed by the whole, like, shift to online. You know, everything was going so well. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the spring semester, then all of a sudden, like, hey, Corona, you got to go teach home at home. I'm like, oh man. And you know how it is, you know, with that program, uh, everything's hands on. You have to be on campus. It's just fun, fun energy, fun excitement. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I'm stuck at home, you know, and it was kind of disappointing, but I realized, oh, it's a good opportunity to like start thinking about how to make things different or at least deliver curriculum in a different way, you know? So it made me Think differently for a while. Gave me a solid six months to like appreciate the downtime, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think of all programs of, of all, it would the media program would probably be the one that would be affected the most because you have to create projects. And if you can't be together, you don't want twenty five different videos on how quarantine affected your life. Like how do you how do you juggle with that? It's all about collaboration and you guys kinda know that and know the vibe of that
1: that whole, you know, program and the spirit of what you guys do, but the same time there's like you got to keep everybody safe you know so that's like the main goal that we're trying to do right now at the college Uh, but at the same time it really compromises what what that program is all about you know and Nick you were there um, about a year and a half ago maybe less than that and you kind of got a taste of what that was all about and, and Matt, you were there for like a solid two years and you were you were like steeped in that culture. So, yeah, without any of that energy going around and everybody being isolated, it it's it's going to be something different, you know. So but it's not going to stop me. You know, I'm, I'm still going to find ways to get everybody engaged, connected and all that stuff. So we're going to find a way to make it happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, you seem very motivated when it comes to like, you know, molding students into being just straight savages sometimes. <laughs> um like a lot of people sometimes sometimes, (laughs) definitely you
2: gotta be though when you teach like media and stuff like that because you gotta
0: yeah you you don't want to like sugarcoat something like this because it's a really it's a really difficult industry and i find that if if you take this program as like a as like an elective it's not going to do you well and having somebody teach you that from the start is it's very helpful and it can kind of sometimes weed out the people that don't take it as seriously yeah I think the ones that
1: really succeed are the ones that go into the classroom with a sense of humility, not like, oh, I got this in the bag and I'm going to do really well. Then at the end of the semester, they just drop the ball with a shitty music video or just like their expectations completely got shattered because they just didn't know how to manage it. You know, so the ones that come in with the most humility super humble, super willing to collaborate with everybody are the ones that are, are, that are going to be the savages. You know what I mean? Because those are the ones that they are going to be influencing other people to be better than them, you know?
2: Like Matt Dixon, for example. I
1: guess.
0: I mean, you could say that, I suppose, but <laughs> he's a humble savage, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I try.
2: Anybody who's rocking a champion shirt in uh, 2020, <laughs> humble
0: savage. I mean, they really made a comeback. I mean, they did make a comeback. I do, I do fuck with champion. I really do. <laughs>
2: Is that like the biggest comeback brand of any of any clothing line? I've never I've never seen another thing that went from like the shit that your dad and your grandpa wear to like shit that like hype beasts wear in like the span of like five years like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're you're a guy who lived to the 90s. You kind of know what the culture was like around that time. I like, didn't really wear champions
1: like that. I did wear like starter jackets and stuff. So I still have like met starter jackets and jerseys. I miss when-
2: starter jackets.
0: I don't like starter hats, though, because they're, like, kind of small, and I have a gigantic head, and it doesn't work for me, but the, the starter brand, I feel like, is something that should have a comeback, because they're, they're pretty pretty cool. I
2: became a Red Sox fan because of a starter jacket. Because we ever of you that jacket? story?
0: No, please tell. Because
2: I had, my babysitter had, like, a kid who was, like, six years older than me, I think, and um, she gave me a Yankees starter jacket, and it was absolutely massive, and like when I went to school with it, thinking I was all cool because I had the Yankee starter jacket, everyone made fun of me because it was so big. So I was like, "Well, fuck y'all! I'm gonna be a Red Sox fan then." <laughs> and that's how it started.
0: I mean, that's that's how it can happen sometimes. You just want to hate on people, and then when they hate on you. They're like, "Okay, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take that over. I'm gonna make it my own." Yeah. So that's kind of how I am sometimes. When somebody tells me not to do something, I'm more likely to do it. Mm-hmm. But it usually in a, in a better way. I would hope so um what are your thoughts on what's going on in the world right now because it's really not just from a corona perspective but like it's really a it's really a wild like you know jungle out there if you will and it's kind of it's kind of strange dude
1: i don't even know where to begin it's tough to like you you could easily get lost in conspiracy theories and all that shit but it's at this point like you can't tune it out, but you just have to be aware of all these things that are going on so you're not completely lost in what's going on, uh, but at the same time it can't let you affect it it can't you can't get affected by it cuz I feel like it's designed whatever the conversations and static that's going on right now, all this noise that's going on, it's designed to distract you and really to affect your mental health. It's Mm -hmm. so fucking dizzying in in terms of like all these fucking like conversations going on. It's everybody's at each other's throats. And at the same time, everybody's distracted. Nobody knows that it's going to be like 100 days before or less before the election. You know what I mean? And you can make a change if you want to, if you want to actually like do something about it instead of getting lost in all this fucking anger. You know, and there's a lot of anger and hatred right now that's like clouding everybody's like you know, perspective and vision and it's it's kind of unfortunate, you know, but at the same time you you just gotta protect yourself from all this shit because it's just so fucking toxic.
2: I gotta say, like since I stopped watching the news like about a year ago, I've become so much happier of a person. Like I I try to I try to stay informed from like catching things from other people, kind of like secondhand information where I'm like I'll have conversations with people about what's going on, but since I've stopped like actively seeking it out and just kind of found it from other people, found it from friends, found it from family, I've become so much, so much more relaxed, so much more um, able to to focus on what I really want and what I really think, and I I hope that more people follow that road because like I don't I don't know how much longer we can go down this this path of just yelling at everybody and hating everybody and, you know, craziness that's going on. Well, the
0: news cycle is just like a big dumpster fire most of the time. And it's, yeah, it's sad because you, you'll see like, you know, when we have the two sided issue of, you know, left and right. And then, you know, it, it seems like a majority of people are sort of in the middle. But then, you know, we'll, we'll get to a point where there's a, a gigantic issue like we have right now with the, you know, the police brutality issue we have right now. And, you know, the fact that some people are making it a political issue that you have to wear a mask, and it's just like th- these people go out there and say that other people are dividing them, yet they're the ones that are causing the division themselves by, like, not accept, not like seeing it from other people's perspectives. Mm-hmm. Like, I I feel like the reason that all this division happens is because one side makes their money on on how much they can piss off the other side. Sometimes I think there's.
2: I feel like there is a lot of that going around, right? On I mean, a happier note.
0: On a happier note, yes. Yeah. Um, like um Mark, what's it like like I know you live over in the uh, in the Newburgh area. Like what's it like in a town like that that's been so like ravaged by poverty and and things like that over the years? Like how is, has the current movement affected affected what it's like over there?
1: Yeah, so Newburgh is kind of like in a transitional state, you know? Um there's a lot of investment going on in the city and seeing a lot of new faces come up from the city because of covid and even prior to that there's a lot of like transplants moving up here me being one of them um it's definitely changing in a way where it's positive even though there was a lot of positive positivity before that uh that was clouded by a lot of negative negative stereotypes um there's there's a lot of positive things going on across the board in in the city of newburgh so yeah the stereotypes are still there and people kind of just like Kind of trash on on Newburgh, unfortunately, but we have a, a great community of artists, a lot of great entrepreneurs out here who are like leading the way for the Hudson Valley to, for the art scene, for the 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 culinary scene. I mean, like the waterfront's popping off, Liberty Street is popping off. There's a lot of talented people moving up here from the city and really emerging as a scene. You know what I mean? So. Um, all that negativity should never be, not even that it shouldn't be spoken about, but it should be like a stepping stone towards the next level of whatever Newburgh will transform into because it could influence potentially all the other cities around, you know, the Hudson Valley
2: area. I really like going to Newburgh. I mean, like I go there every time and I'm like, I don't know why people trash on it. Like it's a really nice place. Well,
0: I think it's, it's created because it gets a bad rap just because of how it's perceived in society. Like, it's viewed as, like, one of the biggest poverty-stricken areas in the country. So, like, even I'm guilty of it sometimes where, you know, you'll say, oh, Newburgh's a bad area. But I, I, I question how you'll be able to improve an area like that if you're, you know, complaining about it all the time. Like, if you're seeing an area that's impoverished like that, you would, I would think you would want to see it do better.
2: I mean, there's so much, like, beautiful architecture over there. And there's yeah. these, these these gorgeous neighborhoods and and. Really cool places to live and places to work and things to do, and it's 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 nice to hear that people are are pumping money into it and, and pumping ideas into it, and I hope that continues. Yeah, and definitely. Middletown is kind of seeing the same thing right now. You know, it's kind mm. of Middletown was never as as bad as Newburgh from the sense of like having. A uh, big poverty problem and, and all of that stuff. But New- Middletown, especially downtown, is like really seeing a renaissance. we got the, the trail is going to be going through there soon. Yeah. like All this cool stuff is happening over there. It's nice to see when you've been living here your whole life like I have, and you remember when it was just a boring nothing town with like nothing to do with it. It's, it's, it's pretty neat, I think.
0: Why do you think there is so much ignorance uh, revolved around like, what areas are good and what areas are bad like where do you think that comes from as far as a societal standpoint i think
1: at the end of the day it all stems from money and who controls it you know so um up here you know i can't really speak on like the politics of count on a county level that's just that's not my place you know and i don't want to put myself in a position uh where you know I compromise my job or anything like that. Right. But it's just a matter of, um, yeah, whoever controls the money up here in, in the county or even in the state really um, controls the narrative of whatever the destinies of these cities are. You know, it's unfortunate. That's how it is. And it, it, that, that goes across for like, you know, for across America. We live in a capitalistic system. So that's, that's how we're going to operate. Money's going to dictate the successes of many cities.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Detroit, who we've discussed. Where we discussed on the show many times before. Yeah,
0: definitely. I mean, Detroit's uh, just a, a big old dumpster fire in itself, but I think it's just a product of of people in in the in a capitalistic society, like you said, kind of giving up on an economy mm-hmm. where they're they're where they saying there's you're uh, prioritizing money over over anything else.
2: I mean, if there's hope for Newburgh, there's got to be hope for Detroit. Detroit's just a bigger Newburgh. Yeah, I
0: mean, yeah. I, I would hope it's making the same sort of comeback that you know well
1: south south um south side chicago is kind of like experiencing the same renaissance that a lot of these cities that were affected by uh deindustrialization of like the last you know 70 to 100 years um that's a that's a area that's been heavily invested by local entrepreneurs and artists and they've transformed that area that was known as like a very you know uh, crime ridden area into like just a blossoming neighborhood um same thing in Brooklyn. I mean I grew up in Brooklyn and I I saw waves of gentrification happening and I was a gentrifier myself. Uh, but I don't know if I'm a gentrifier living. Like I I grew up in Brooklyn but I lived in areas like Bed-Stuy or Bushwick where rent was cheaper and yeah it wasn't much wasn't much safer but at the same time like I was somehow contributing to the betterment of that, you know, of that area by just being there, you know. So um there's pros and cons to all that, you know. So but it's there's i look at i look at changes like that in from a positive perspective so in newburgh again there's a lot of cultural change cu- cultural impact a lot of cultural exchanges happening and i think artists are leading that way you know what i mean and artists led the way in detroit where um because of socioeconomic circumstances these dj's um, helped create the techno movement there techno was birthed in detroit if you guys didn't know that electronic dance music isn't really like part of the techno scene but techno was birthed in detroit not europe but if if it wasn't for those djs and during these circumstances they wouldn't have that music that's world a worldwide phenomenon now so cities like newberg could sort of create this product you know whatever cultural export we could create and export it out to a different part of the world you know you never know what could happen so it's just a matter of just having the right people in place, right time, right investments to make moves like
0: that happen. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the artists are the one that do this. I think it's
2: because the artists are the most likely to look across people who are into that sort of scene or the, I think are the most likely to look across cultural boundaries or economic boundaries and kind of look at what everybody else is doing. Because there's, in order to be an artist, I think you have to have a lot of inherent curiosity. And a lot of inherent interest in other people and other other things, and Mm. how how stuff works.
0: Yeah, I think there's then there's people who like take advantage of it. They use the culture for their own benefit. Yeah, which can be problematic sometimes.
2: Well, that's that's where you get into the the little zans of the world. Yeah,
0: yeah, (laughs) definitely.
1: Well, the artists that I know here in Newberg are a little older too, so they've reached a point in their lives where they not that they're looking to profit off their art, but they understand what their purpose is so if you if you could convert that thinking from i'm chasing profit to understanding your purpose then you've reached a higher level of art artistry you know what i mean and that to me is like that's something hard to level up to you know what i mean and once you get to that point it's like you free yourselves of the shackles that's holding you back from really pursuing your art with in earnest and uh, you can't you can never teach that. You just have to get to that stage and keep grinding away to get to that point where you're free of all the, you know, the criticisms or even your own self, you know, your own insecurities to get to that point of just being free with your art. And I, I know a bunch of artists here in Newberg who have reached that point and they just feel happy. They understand what they're here for and, and they're contributing to the community in a, in, in a, in a positive way.
0: Why do you think it is like? Have you ever had an experience where you've had, uh, like, maybe even a student or something that you've known that you've been able to educate them on what they're doing wrong as far as like cultural appropriation or they've taken advantage of a of a particular culture, or or even you could say this like in general, like if a person comes into your program with a really big ego and you're able to kind of bring them down and make them, you know,
1: yeah, it, it's tough to humble um, students who who have that mentality and that and. Let, the, you know, I, I let them rock, you know, and that's fine because at the end of the day, they'll eventually put themselves in a position where they're going to be forced to learn a lesson that's going to really humble them. Um, but it's not my job to teach them what appropriation is all about. Uh, I, I, just show them what I've learned through my, you know, through my experiences, uh, as a DJ and producer and show them what is accepted and what's not, you know, um, because it, I know I knew one student who was trying to be a DJ and I was I was just trying to like, you know, kind of rein in um, his um, kind of expectations of what DJing was all about and not coming from it like, oh, you need to be a purist, blah, blah, blah. But like at the end of the day, like if you're trying to rock a party, you need to you you need to have skills, you know, not just like a hot mess DJ, a train wreck DJ just mixing one track to another with no common sense of matching beats. So. Um, I have to break that down to that student and kind of like let them know, like, look, you can't just like while out on turntables or your DJ controller and just mix one track to another. You, you can't. You're not a radio DJ. You're a DJ. You're rocking a party. So learn how to you know, blend in beats. On top of that, you need to have a solid selection. You know, you can't just like just pick whatever is hot on iTunes and just be a DJ. Being a DJ means like you have to have like some level of authenticity deep knowledge of records and know how to mix all that together you know so appropriation is like it is what it is i think everybody kind of goes through that process of like experiencing it knowing that they're kind of like in in the middle of it and if they accept it or not they they kind of like either walk away from it or just kind of like keep rolling with whatever they're appropriating you know so it's unfortunate but at the same time it's a lesson to be learned
0: yeah it's unfortunate that people have to live like that where they they feel they they can't you know understand their own culture so they feel the need to the little like drag off of other people's
1: well it's also like maybe you could you could say that some folks might be insecure about their own lack of identity and they have to bite onto something else that has uh that's steeped in in you know cultural identity you know what i mean that there's a steep history behind it um maybe it's an insecurity thing maybe i don't know i don't know what it is but um you know, for me, when, when I kind of found a commonality with hip hop culture, it was because of the fact that, um, I just loved the music, you know, and, and, um, I couldn't really connect with anything else, but like a tribe called quest or de la soul or any of those rap groups from the nineties that just were like resonating to me at that time. So, but I didn't culturally appropriate the style. It was just like part of urban culture for me, mm-hmm. you know, growing up from Brooklyn, I don't know how it is for like, for kids in the suburbs who kind of started, you know, looking and playing the part of an African American rapper or African American kid from the city. I don't I, I can't really tell that that experience. But for me, li- living in the city, you know, it was kind of like my my outfit was like Timberlands and jeans and us and a fitted cap. You know, mm-hmm. I owned like 20 fitted caps at the age of like 19, you know? So that that was just me. That was my that was my identity as a, a New Yorker or a Brooklyn kid. But I can't really tell if that was the same experience for a lot of kids upstate
2: or somewhere else you know so i mean like i don't know about how it was in montgomery i kind of saw saw both elements of that growing up like there was because there was a lot in middletown there's a lot of transplants from the city so there are people that would come up from like brooklyn and queens and stuff who would who had lived in these environments and then there was people there that like that kind of latched onto it but there there was always the people that were doing it because they love the music and they love the seed and they love the the style and the, the, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. and there was the people who were doing it because they wanted to look cool, and and you could you could smell it, you know what I mean? Like you could tell who was really about it and who was just who was just posing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you grew up in more of an urban area anyway, so I I think it would be it it really depends on who you are and where you grow up. Mm-hmm. So like him being a, I, I would say you're more of a, a minority person, so you grow up a minority person in a in an urban area that might be a little easier for somebody compared to someone like you who grows up in an urban area who is just, you know, the whitest boy that there is. Um, I, I think it's, it's important that you not go into that situation, like try to make it your own.
2: Yeah. You have to, you have to kind of respect like where people are coming from. I think, mm-hmm. you know, like, like hip hop music was always something that appealed to me too. but It was, you know, it was just cause it, you know, it, it, it was cool to me. it, it, it impacted me mm-hmm. emotionally and, you know, so it was it wasn't something that I was doing because I wanted to look like a a cool guy or whatever but there were people I knew who were all about it because of those reasons oh yeah definitely Where definitely you, they they dressed up like you know Jay-Z or Kanye or whoever but could name like three songs
0: and yeah I, I don't like people like that who just feel the need like that they that their ego is so fragile that they feel the need to say okay I'm not that cool to begin with so I'm gonna take this thing that I think is cool. And because I think other people would think I'm cool,
2: but that's what it is. It's like, it, like what Mark was saying. It is an insecurity thing. I it think. is. Cause like, you know, if you, if you don't have a sense of identity of who you are as a person, yeah, you know, I was, I was very fortunate that I kind of, I, I always had a good sense of who I was. Whereas a lot of people don't have that for whatever reason. You know, if they're, when you don't have that, it's very easy to get latched onto just whatever is popular, and and whatever is trendy at the time. Definitely, yeah. But I think I just to
1: add on to that, I think that social media or just the current state of media has amplified a lot of those insecurities too by giving you know individuals access to technology to sort of boost up their profile. Uh, if anything, the the whole culture of clout chasing has been become like such a a phenomenon now that you know kids with or you know young adults with zero following or even like maybe a couple of hundred could have the the access to you know famous people tag them on their post and feel like you know a sense of empowerment that you know someone like me didn't have back in the 90s where i actually had to go to like events and connect with people like in a real way like physically and and like build my rapport with individuals or uh, individuals in the industry in a meaningful way. Now you could easily access people's DMs and be like, yo, I got I tagged so and so on this thing. I'm down, you know, yeah, yeah. Me, I have I've always not that I ever felt like an outsider, but I, I feel I always felt humble when I was around like legends of hip hop culture. I never felt like I was above them. I always felt awkward filming them. So I would always ask for, for permission to film them or even when I work with the roots filming them filming backstage I never said a word to them like I was like cool with them they knew my name but I never like you know um I never had the casual conversations with them because I just you know I, I felt so intimidated because I was just like in front of like legends so I I just never I always like paid deference to these individuals because they paved the way for me to have an opportunity to like you know do what I'm doing now as a professional so yeah. I mean, going back to the beginning of our conversation about humility, uh, it's a big thing, like going into whatever pursuit or endeavor you're going after. Humility and also having some level of authenticity as an individual is like the key, key to the, key to success. And that's why this whole culture of cloud chasing is problematic because everybody thinks they're fucking famous because they, got, they tag people on social media or do whatever the fuck they need to do to feel like they're important.
0: I think it's a lot of people like they, they have so much to compare to that they, like you said, they think that they're that they're immediately going to become famous because they act exactly the way somebody they see on like Instagram is acting. Mm-hmm. When in reality, you don't really have much of a you don't really have much of a following to begin with.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's I it's two things, right? Like remember what Andy Warhol said, when he was like, "In the future, everybody will be famous for fifteen minutes." Like we're living in that reality right now. And then also, I think there's like there's a lot of people in in this country in the world at large who want to be famous but don't want to put in the work to get there Mm -hmm. and the idea of clout chasing on social media has opened up those avenues where people you know people are who are famous for being famous quote unquote where they can they can just do crazy stuff and people give them attention and give them notoriety and they don't have to actually bring anything to the table artistically or creatively or uh, skill-wise or just whatever the case may be whatever you would normally be getting famous for or being recognized for it's it's, it seems like such a, a sad way to live your life like you're you're famous for as the guy that eight horse poop at the philadelphia eagles yeah. parade like also you know it's what like
0: I mean? like you were saying with like the envy thing like people who think that they have better technology like having better technology doesn't make you a better person like somebody taking a photo with a brand new camera mm-hmm. or somebody taking a photo with a three-year-old iphone is really not going to make much of a difference if the person who takes the photo with the iphone actually cares what they're taking the picture of right you know if somebody's going out and actually making the effort to make their picture the best that they can make it with what they have. I think that's a lot more honorable than somebody spending five minutes with their fancy camera, taking a picture that probably doesn't look that great anyway, because you put zero effort into it. Mm -hmm. So when you put zero heart into something, I think you're going to get, you're going to get a lot less of a response than somebody who, even if they don't have a large following is going to take the effort to put the same effort into when they have five followers, if they had 5,000 followers.
2: I mean, you know, like look at movies as the perfect example of that. How many movies come out that are shot with the best technology and and recorded with the best technology, and they're you know there's no there's no substance to them. But then, you know, you love Clerks more than life itself.
0: I do love Clerks more than life itself. And Clerks
2: Clerks <laughs> was made for like like twenty thousand dollars with like a, a shitty camera. And yeah, you can. It it resonated with people because you could feel that everybody working on the production really cared about making something.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think with with any like production, you're still gonna get people, even if it's a shitty movie, you're still gonna get people that appreciate that they worked on this film. Yeah. They're still gonna put in the effort, and that can show in some aspects of a film.
2: I think that's the difference between movies that are bad and movies that are so bad they're good. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the room, you know, you could tell that everybody it's hot was gut. trying.
1: <laughs> it's
2: hot.
0: you're not a fan of the room hell no you don't know what you're talking about (laughs) no it's trash
2: i mean or maybe like uh but like kazam you could tell that nobody was trying (laughs) yeah exactly so yeah just
1: to end it off on that point um gary v well-known super famous gary v i saw him post this up he said content is king and context is god and we're living that moment right now in terms of watching a fuck ton of content, um, we're being inundated with so many TV series, movies, trailers, on a weekly basis. The one through line that separates the good and bad films or movies or content that we're watching is context. And I I think at the end of the day, it's really a response. Well, it's also the monetization and capitalization of all these films and, and all that. But at the same time, from an artistic perspective, a lot of artists are losing this idea of the importance of context. You guys kind of get that you you guys are storytellers at the end of the day, but if you write a shitty story, that means you didn't put enough effort and energy into developing context for your narrative. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's the most important thing that I think artists and creatives need to carry into whatever they're creating is context. The importance of telling a story, whether, whether you think is it's good or bad, it's, it's up to somebody else to determine, you know, uh, what the quality is of your narrative. But if you don't have any context, all you're doing is just fucking music videos with zero, just rappers rapping. I'm, I was guilty of that. You know what I mean? Creating just content. But for me, it was all about sharpening up my skills as a cinematographer and not really trying to tell stories. And I did that purposefully. Uh, but there's other people who are just blindly creating content and not knowing that, they're, that even though they're trying to tell a story, they fucking suck at telling stories because they didn't develop a sense of self and a sense of understanding it or you know experience enough experiences to really tell a good story you know so at the end of the day context matters
0: yeah i think somebody who takes a project that they do and they see it as bad and they continually say oh that wasn't my best work and i'm not going to ever talk about that again i think it's important to talk about your work that you didn't enjoy because you're still no matter even if you didn't like what you did you're still going to learn something from that production
2: you know, that's ironic coming from you, though, because I keep telling you you should dust off your Shaq Fu script again, and you never <laughs> do it.
0: Uh, we're, we're not going to talk about that. Shaq I <laughs> I don't think we need that. I really don't think we need that. I think we do. I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said indeed. What's the story
2: going to be of my Why You Should Buy Bryce's Jeep video? Of Why what's, You Should Buy a Jeep story? video? Yeah.
0: He wants to, he has this idea. He wants to. Buy, uh, his friend is selling his Jeep, so he wants to... Yeah,
2: my roommate is selling his Jeep, and I figured that since we make videos that I could, we could make a video where I explain all the reasons that people should buy his Jeep and then put it on YouTube, and it's like a different marketing angle. Instead of saying, for sale, yada yada, call this, for sale, here's the YouTube link, check this out.
1: Yeah, I, I think that would work. That's all. It's all about context, right? Yeah. So you put a story behind your car, I think it'll give it a... Yeah, it's a different spin, but everybody loves a good story, you yeah. know? So try to pull on the heartstrings.
2: Yeah.
0: I think it'd be even more hilarious if it was like a really shitty car. Like you're trying to sell. Well,
2: it's. It, that's the thing. It's not a great car. He's like, he's just like, I'll take what I can get for it. Yeah. But I was, I, I said, this is a great opportunity for you and me.
0: Yeah, I, I think we'll take that. Maybe one.
2: we can even do it with other cars that we're selling, you know? Like when my dad sells his Corolla, there we go. There you go. I remember when this was stuck in the sand in Providence, Massachusetts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, both of our sports teams are imploding at the moment. Yours worse than ours right now because we at least have a slight chance, but the Red Sox are in no, con- no condition to be playing in the major leagues right now. The
2: Red Sox have the absolute worst pitching staff I've ever seen in my 20 years of watching baseball. <laughs> it's, it's horrendous.
1: I haven't uh, I haven't seen a game since 2015. <laughs> I refuse to watch a baseball game because I'm a superstitious Met fan.
2: Mm.
0: I mean, you're not a real Met fan unless you expect something to go wrong. <laughs> but I don't think being superstitious is going to help the situation.
1: Yeah, I just you know when when I did watch the the 2015 World Series, I jinxed them. I'm like, I'm never watching a game again because I used to watch games religiously and and just watch it like from the first inning all the way to the last. And all of a sudden, 2006, Andy Chavez. I was like, I'm never committing to this kind of heartbreak ever again. You know,
0: you're a devil of a man for mentioning that.
1: Yeah, I I just can't do that again. And I started doing that again. and I was like, you know what? When I when I bought the MLB app or MLB TV app, I just started watching games religiously. But I stopped watching like my team games. I felt better about it because I just like the call of the game. But when I started watching Met games, it would start losing. So I'm like, yo, I can't I can't do this. So
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like you don't want to, you really don't want to jinx your team, but like I'm always going to support the team like sporadically throughout the season. But if they make the playoffs, I'm not going to miss a game. That's just how I am. Mm -hmm. Like I I watched every game of that World Series up until the last out, and then I turned it off and made me sad.
1: I can't, I can't do it because it's, I know they're going to lose. I don't know. That's just, that's just the Met fan in me. Yeah. I'd rather watch, not watch, than hear about them winning and just look at the stats later on or watch the highlight reels. I'm like, all right, good. You won. Happy.
0: I mean it's still okay for you because your team finishes in last place, they hire Bobby Valentine and the next year they win the World Series. So it, it really doesn't make any sense anymore.
2: I mean it's 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 a weird it's an interesting question, right? It's a conundrum. Would you rather be perpetually average struggling struggling to get over the hump like the Mets or would you take four World Series championships but every year you don't win the World Series, you're just Yeah.
0: <laughs> to work yeah, for the I think Marlins. When
1: Steve, when Steve Cohen buys the team and just drops a boatload of money on that team, we're going to be competitive, competitive like the Dodgers.
2: I think oh. so. I mean. There's only so long that the Wilpons can continue to use the Bernie Madoff excuse.
0: But Van Wagenen has just completely obliterated that farm system. And I I don't know how how they're going to be able to recover that quickly.
2: I loved that uh, Billy Hamilton trade where he he traded a a number seven prospect for a guy that he could have just signed in February. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Nothing they do makes sense anymore. And I think Van Wagenen is the perfect example of that. (laughs)
2: Well, he's an agent. He's not a
0: general manager. Yeah,
2: I didn't. I, thought, I, I didn't he know how. Good a bit, no. What's that? I thought he was doing good for a little bit.
0: He traded. He, he was. He traded away our best prospect for Robinson Cano and a closer who's not doing it pretty much nothing. But here's
2: the thing: like at the time, Edwin Diaz was like the best closer in baseball. It yeah, was Francisco
0: only... Rodriguez was too, and we signed him as a free agent. Look how that worked out.
2: I mean, Well, you got to take a chance, though. Yeah, they, they, it, he couldn't have known that. Edwin Diaz was going to implode the way that he did
0: I just don't see like draining your farm system for one player mm-hmm. I just don't see it unless that player is Mike Trout but that's never going to happen so
2: well Mike Trout is he is didn't he sign like the biggest contract in pro sports history
0: no I think Mahomes just beat it now Mahomes yeah, yeah. Oh yeah yeah no, this the problem I have is like the Yankees seem to work well with building their farm system up, signing a couple of free agents. The Mets' idea is just let's sign all the free agents we can find and have like maybe one or two prospects. It's like kind of reverse and it seems that to was work.
1: The Yankee formula for many years. Yeah, it's it yeah. still kind
0: of is. I mean, you have most of their players are homegrown, and then you'll have the occasional like the John Carlos Stanton here and there. But, mm-hmm. but the like, Mets, but the Mets just don't Stanton seem got, to they don't seem they to want Stanton. to take that up. What's that? They,
1: sign Stanton. they got him for via trade. Yeah, yeah. Cole was the biggest signing that they've had. Yeah, in definitely.
0: Like years. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, like most of their players. You got Judge. You have um, who's that guy now? Clint Frazier is a homegrown player. Yeah, oh. I mean, he was from another team, but still, he's he's still a homegrown Wait. player.
1: Wait, you mean Clint Fraser? Yeah, he played with the Mets, didn't he?
0: No, no, that's Todd Frazier. That's Todd Frazier. Todd Fraser. Oh, yeah,
2: okay. the Todd father. I yeah. miss him.
0: Yeah, I do too. He was a pretty good. I mean, he wasn't the greatest player, but he was mm-hmm. he was good. He was good morale, kind of like Michael Caddair. He was good morale. But he wasn't a good, uh, not a great signing.
2: Michael Kadire won the batting title and was out of baseball two years later. I'll never forget that.
0: I mean, he was just coming to hang out with his friend David Wright.
2: (laughs) How many Rockies have won the batting title? Probably like nine, I think.
0: I mean, see where they play.
2: (laughs) Todd Helton, Nolan Arenado, Charlie Blackman, who's probably going to win it again.
0: Larry Walker ever won a batting title?
2: I think so. I think he was hitting
1: like um close to 400 at one point in one year in the 90s -hmm. because of just the
2: thin air because that him and tony Gwynn they had that chase to 400 yeah i'm sorry do you think that speaking of hitting 400 do you think if somebody hits 400 this year that like it'll be seen as not a legitimate record because it was a shortened season
0: absolutely well yeah of course not
1: it has to be 162 games or not
0: if if you're playing like 150 games, mm-hmm. I could maybe or even like maybe 125, I could see if they were able to work that out. Right. It would maybe be kind of but if you're not playing there at least 100, some th-
1: kind of minimum, there has to be kind of minimum ABs to yeah. to qualify you for the for that award. Um yeah, I'm sure there's batters who hit like 400 for, you know, X amount of at bats, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, throughout the season, but yeah, if you do it for a sustained period of time, it has to be over 350 at bats or 400 mm-hmm. to qualify you. You
0: know, yeah. I just think play. like some of the awards they should just not even bother giving out this year because it's not fair to the people of other years that have. You know, like you're going to give the Cy Young Award to a guy that won five games, like yeah, it's it just a doesn't weird work one. that way. I mean, just it seems give, to work for DeGrom every year.
1: Just <laughs> just give the championship to the Astros again. Fuck it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, they're having a rough time. I, I sort of feel bad for them, but at the same time, like, not
2: really. why do? You, why would you even remotely feel bad for them?
0: Because you. Yeah. <laughs> It's just like they're going through so much crap right now, and it's just. But I, I no, but I don't they, feel bad for them because they're yeah. playing without fans, so they're not getting the torture that they deserve.
2: Yeah, and then True. baseball <laughs> is is uh, throwing out anybody who who stands up to them. You know, free Joe Kelly. Free Hashtag Joe free Kelly. Free Joe Kelly.
0: Are you are you abreast of the Joe Kelly situation?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, Joe Kelly did dick. nothing
1: wrong. He's a dick. He's a, he's a dick. Whatever the Astros did, what they had to do—that's it. You're a Barry he's Bonds
0: going. fan. I thought you liked Dick players. I am a Barry Bonds fan. I thought you liked Dick players.
2: He's—he's he's the goat. Let's not forget that.
0: <laughs> I mean, we can—we can differ on opinion, but we won't have that conversation today. He's,
2: he's so right now, Charlie Blackman and DJ LeMahieu are both hitting over 400 for the year, and Donovan Solano is close at 396. So I just don't
0: see. I, I just don't see that happening like they're they're gonna have at least one slump through the whole thing so I think like
2: it's only 60 games though and they yeah. might not like it like you like we said it won't be a legitimate record but it'll still no. be there ha- it'll there still has be, cool. to be
1: a minimum a b because that if you do like 60 games four at bats per game that's only 240 mm-hmm. so uh, there has to be a minimum threshold I remember seeing it reading like I have the Bill James abstract i read that shit back and forth there has to be a minimum a b count yeah
0: yeah yeah Yeah, it's just not fair for the record book if you're only playing like, you know, (laughs) like less than a quarter of the season. So,
2: I feel the same way about this season record-breaking potential that I feel about steroids. Put it in the hall, but with an asterisk.
0: I tend to agree. There you go. There you go.
2: Charlie Blackman had the highest single-season batting average in 2020. Asterisk. It was only 60 games. But
1: but 60 games doesn't count, though. It just doesn't
2: feel right. It's not. Well, there's the, there's the asterisk.
0: Barry, Bonds, like Bonds, Barry hit
2: seven, Bonds is the home run king. He asterisk. hit 73. I,
0: it's just a prank, bro. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, what if like Barry Bonds played now, hit a home run every game, knocked out, knocked 60? Would you count that?
0: Um, I mean, it'd be impressive, but it's still...
2: <laughs> Barry, it's, imagine Barry Bonds like two years ago with the juiced ball. Like it it be over. <laughs> 100 home runs in a season. Just
0: think if he didn't get walked all the time, how many home run, extra home runs he would have hit that year. Have you
2: ever seen... A video about what if barry bonds played yeah. without a bat yeah crazy crazy you gotta watch that matt i've yeah. seen it he he had he had the fucking like the same ops it's insane
0: we're big fans of espionation on children's programming
2: yeah especially john boyce he just yeah. knocks it out of the park every time no pun intended yeah seattle mariners documentary anyone
0: yeah i you, gotta
1: see that. i saw that on on youtube
0: i'm not big on their um on their like Prezi sort of documentaries, really.
2: I like that style, though. I don't know. I kind of
0: like the I like the traditional style better. I just don't like the um. The Prezis are good. What's they're wrong? They're good. With it? No, they're good. They're low just, budget. They work. They work. They get the story it's across, but it's mm-hmm. designed for your phone.
1: It's yeah. not designed for like the big screens. Yeah. I, I know. I know. <laughs> the bathroom.
0: Yeah. I mean, David then, Lynch would be mad, but twenty. <laughs> yeah. Gonna watch twenty minutes here, twenty minutes there. No. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's good stuff. I love SB Nation. Mm -hmm. I make quality content.
2: I like their. uh, My favorite one of theirs is the um, Jeff Francoeur. Yeah, and then the um, Adam Dunn hated to run.
1: (laughs) That was a good one.
2: He's the only man ever to walk, strike out, or hit a home run in more than half of his batting appearances. Yeah, (laughs) legend.
0: Mark, what's the uh, what's the future looking like for you right now? Like, what's the what's the five year plan? Five year
2: plan. Yeah. Um
1: just hanging around at SUNY Orange at my 10 year, you know, then um like three years away from getting that, then uh making music, you know, then my girls are getting bigger, so they're going to school soon. Then making music. That's it. Trying to focus on that, trying to get back into that after not um doing it for 10 years, focusing on like, you know, video production for about a solid 10 years and uh, or at least six six years, and teaching for about four or five years, kind of moved away from music production and DJing, which took up at least 15 years of my life. 15 years as a DJ, 10 years as a producer, uh, producing hip-hop mostly. Now I'm just working on mostly like electronic music, and hopefully within the, like the next year and change, I'll release start releasing music through Noisemaker Media. And Noisemaker was initially a record label back in 2001 when I got it like LLC'd. Yeah. Um, it was called Noisemaker Records, and I just wanted to put out like experimental fucking noise and shit like that that I re- that I recorded uh, throughout New York City using a mini disc recorder. So I just took <laughs> all those noises and just threw it into a tape and fucking looped it and created some weird shit. And I was like, I should release this. I need a record label. Let me call it Noisemaker.
0: Is it true that a lot of your early archives were lost in a flood?
1: Yeah. How'd you know?
0: I I remember you. Uh, somebody told me that a while back. I don't think I ever heard it from you, but.
1: Yeah, um, I started posting a lot of skate videos. I used to be a rollerblader back in the day, and I used to be down with skate culture. Um, so my entry into the world of film was through rollerblading skate videos, right? So um, I've been accumulating like a ton of skate videos I'll show it to you, like on VHS, mm-hmm. and started like converting them using some of the old technology that I had, and then digitized it and started uploading it onto um, the Noisemaker Media YouTube page. And, um, you know, all these copyright strikes be damned. I started, I just posted them and people from the, from skate culture started thanking me like, yo, we've been looking for these videos and I've been sitting on these videos for like, you know, five to 10 years and, and for, for them to just reappear in HD, they were like, yo, shout out to you. I'm going to send you all my skate videos right now. Can you digitize them? Then, you know, just going back to that story of getting into skate culture, like back in the mid nineties, I started like shooting on like high eight as like my first like kind of like camera that my mom got me then through that i started skating like with a bunch of ro- rollerbladers in new york city and jumping rails and stuff like that then i met somebody um by the name of neil moreno who is actually he lives in Newburgh or uh lives in new windsor now he moved up here about 15 years ago he's actually like the head director for bmw's like digital marketing team mm-hmm. he's like a big shot like he does a lot of those car commercials and shit like that for local companies and national as well uh but yeah he's, he's huge but if it wasn't for him i wouldn't be where i'm at now because he inspired me to start my own company do my own entrepreneurial kind of like independent thing um so i actually reconnected with him on 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 instagram as well but yeah i i lost a lot of these tapes because neil's house was actually flooded in queens so his house he had all my archives because we were working on um i was working with somebody else who knew neil on a documentary called the dirty rotten apple it was like i didn't even know what a documentary was back then in like 98 (laughs) 99 so we were just interviewing kids from who eventually became pros um in a new york in, in a national skate scene and um something happened to ray he disappeared the the guy that i was working with he disappeared with all the money i i didn't know where all the tapes were then Three, four, five years later, he reappeared like, yo, the tapes got like flooded. I'm like, fuck, man, because I I, I just bought all this gear to digitize all those tapes just for fun. And this is before YouTube popped up in 2004, because I really wanted to take advantage of all this technology. But I I was hunting down for those tapes for so many years and come to find out everything just got flooded and it sucked. It was like over 160 tapes worth of content.
0: It really sucks because like imagine just like today, like your archive just got completely lost just because of something like that. Like I've heard of I've heard of filmmakers who had like their original films on different formats that you can't even access now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I still have some stuff on 16, some stuff on Super 8, um, but that was like the largest collection of content that I had because that was like my earlier years of shooting. And that was before film school, too. So that was really just raw gritty just handheld shooting with a fish eye and i i saw some of the videos that i shot back in the day and i was like yo i was pretty good at like 18 19 i could hold my own like i knew my shots i knew how to i was doing things that were different like for skate videos back then it was all fish eyes and not a lot of removing the fish eye and doing zoom in zoom outs i was kind of like borrowing from films that that influenced me like stanley kubrick's um any of those films like uh a clockwork Um, or any of those films that use the the zoom in, zoom out kind of technique. I was doing that because it it was like my reference. Those films were my reference point to filming skate videos in a different way. Um, and I, I watched back in the days, a ton of skate videos, um, skateboard videos, the four one one videos and some, you know, contemporary rollerblading videos. And I was trying to like borrow their style or be influenced by them. But I was really primarily influenced by films and approaching filming skate videos in a different way. If I had all that content, I would have showed you all that stuff like, yo, this is what you could do without any formal training and on a shitty, you know, VHS or a SVHS camera or a mini DV camera, you know, so without even just like just borrowing from other people's approaches and styles.
0: If anything, that goes back to that point of you don't really need a lot to, to do what you want, like with your dreams of, of being a filmmaker and things like that, mm-hmm. because like I, I hate when I see people that make the excuse like, oh, if I had this piece of equipment, I could do X like it's just amazing to see that like even back then you were able to do use the bare minimum of of material and just use your inspirations as a way to kind of you know capture what you loved Mm -hmm.
1: yeah so that video when we actually um before all that all that content just disappeared by the flood uh by flood uh, i was able to edit like maybe half of that content and i created the trailer essentially for that documentary and that trailer um, got us like the, the deal to press, you know, 5,000 VHSs, but we never got around to actually completing the whole project. We were like halfway done. But so I took that trailer and got into, um, the school of visual arts with it. So on a, on a free scholarship for like, you know, two years. So I was fortunate enough to just have that just to get me to the next level. And I don't know if anything would have changed if I did release that documentary, but at least, you know, I had an opportunity to build on that and it wasn't a complete loss. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm feeling that now, you know, like when I, when I had to buy a new car in April and I did all the, I wanted to do all the research on it. It led me to watching these videos about guys fixing cars. And I was like, I could do this. And like, I just, I bought the Mustang and I said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make it run again. And then here we are. I, I didn't need to go to, I didn't need to go to trade school for that. I just, I'm just figuring it out on my own. And now I have a whole new opportunity ahead of me if I want to try to fix cars for people.
0: Barring you um, criticizing the university that you work for, do you think that we're entering an age when school is not going to be as necessary as it was before, especially for some industries?
1: It's tough, man. Like, it really depends on the makeup of the person. All right. So um, some people need school. They need direction. They need a, a set of tracks to guide them to the next station. There's some people who just know how to create those tracks from scratch without even thinking about it. They're just those. They just have an entrepreneurial kind of makeup to them that allows them to just go for something and create something right away. Um, I don't know where where the world of education is going into, you know, it's, it's a very um, scary time, but at the same time when things are uncertain, it's the, the best time to like take advantage of opportunities that don't exist yet. Cause you're allowed, you're now at, at a position where we, cr- when we could create opportunities that we could imagine, or at least imagine benefiting the world of education in a positive way. Um, we've spoken many times about it, like in the hallways of that, that college, I always envision that, that program to be more of a a training program, you know, like a, like a, not a workshop or anything, but it's sort of like a boot camp for the future. Um, I just don't believe in like, you know, A's or B's or any of that. That's all just fucking hurdles that you have to jump through, you know, all the red tape. But at the end of the day, if I could somewhat, somehow influence you in a positive way that reinforces your qualifications as a professional to get hired on a fucking set, then I've done my job. But if you're the type of person to just run your mouth on set and get kicked off it day one and never be invited again, then I failed as a human being. But at the end of the day, if I could teach you like the right ways of conducting yourselves as a professional, your talent doesn't fucking matter because at the end of the day, your personality and your your willingness to learn on set is what's going to get you ahead, get you that next job. Not a lot of students are willing to submit themselves to this level of humility. You know what I mean? And I think that's the one thing that's really lacking in education. It's like we're not teaching kids to be humble about fucking learning. You know, like technology is kind of overinflated your value you know, not you guys, but I'm just saying like the generation before you completely over overrating and over inflating their value to a point where it's like, why do I need to go to school? You know? So
0: I think ego is a really big thing when it comes to that, because like, yeah, definitely, if you're not willing to fail, then why are you even getting into it in the first place? Cause you can't expect life to be everything you ever asked for.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, you know, most of the time you're going to, it's going to take a really long time before you can get into that groove of where you're, You know, you really want to try things out for a long period of time before you get to really what you love. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think you ever imagined that. You know, when you were our age, that you were going to end up being, you know, as successful as you are. I mean, I'm sure you had a different perspective of your life twenty years ago than you did now.
1: No, not at all. I mean, I I thought I was going to have like a regular job, job. You know, not like have the freedom to do whatever I want to do and still be me as a person. You know what I mean? Um, I think not compromising. My craft or my, you know, artistic spirit is one thing, but completely disregarding it is going to be, you know, I consider that a, a complete failure. I never did that, you know. It was the only thing that I knew, that I, the, the only talent that I possess is my art. So I needed to find a way to monetize off, off it. Not like in a way where I, I could make millions off it. That would have been awesome, but at the same time, I don't think I would have succeeded in that world because the pressures of creating art, especially for a pure artist. If you fail at it, it's like, you're going to hate your art forever. And I, I never wanted to get to that point because I did get to that point and I didn't like what I was doing because I was just doing the same shit. And I, I, I wanted to do something that allowed me to appreciate myself and also my art. And I thought teaching was a way to kind of reinvigorate myself and being around young people who who just knew shit that I didn't know to allow me to like, you know, add to the experience that I had, you know? So I, yeah, I, I don't regret anything. I, what I envisioned back then 20 years ago was um, I didn't want to be hungry, you know, I didn't want to like like sleep on people's couches day in, day out. I wanted to have my own space in my own home and be able to create without having to worry about people complaining about my music or me just fucking walking around the house. You know what I mean? I wanted to have my own space to me. That's success, you know. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I'm humble. You know, I try to be humble sometimes. So
0: you have to show it here and there. You have to yeah. show a little bit of a little brag.
1: Sometimes, sometimes.
0: How do you think it's because obviously you found somebody that you you spend your life with and you've been able to have a great family with. Like, what is the importance of having a, a really good partner in life to to build towards what you want?
1: Oh, it's it's critical, you know, but it, it shouldn't be like the the end game for you. It should be, you know, you should have somebody who just understands um, the insanity that you put yourself through. You know being an artist or being a creative professional because it's an insane profession to deal with i mean any any like endeavor that takes a lot of commitment is crazy you know what i mean there's a level of crazy that we all have if we're you know and getting ourselves immersed in this so a partner like my wife is just you know understands completely she's empathetic um but i she also reigns me in in a way where i have to balance out my life and my creativity and also the need to be ambitious like i want to take on a million and one things she did, she only wants me to take on maybe 5 you know what i mean so having her in my life allows me to sort of restrain all these
0: ambitious kind of like ticks that i have and then how do you like like balance like obviously you spent a lot of time learning to be you know a lot of hours editing and you've learned to be a pretty much a master editor at this point where you're efficient with your production and all that like how do you determine at what point in your life you you take on a skill that you're going to work on exclusively like how do you know like what skill to work on specifically over time well it's all about process if you don't
1: have like a workflow a way of thinking about creating or just a way of going about you know the beginning middle and end um, then you're never going to get to the end because if you don't have a process to creating something or thinking about something then you don't know what the end game is with editing um you know for me like it took me time to get to a point of mastery i was proficient i mean if i showed you videos from 2001 two and three when i started editing on nonlinear um software i was trash i was hot garbage and i was editing in a way where it was very mechanical robotic formulaic without any kind of org- organic kind of feel to it and because i was overthinking the process because i didn't know what the process was so As years went along, I started developing my own cadence as an editor, my own approach to editing. And once my technology got better, I was able to edit faster. So once my process got faster, my technology got faster, my output got faster. So again, it's all about process, workflow equals results. And that's how I got to a point of proficiency or even mastery as an editor, because I don't think about stuff anymore. I just assess the content that I shoot. I know what I shot, I know how to piece it together. I kind of dick around with like the soundtrack here and there, but the soundtracks are, you know, I already have like an idea in mind or in my ear what I would like to see, you know, uh, visually with the actual music. Uh, but usually that's what takes me longer in terms of determining what the soundtrack will be versus the actual editing process. Because once I lock in my first edit, it's like I'm done with the with the rest of the edit. in like maybe, you know, whether it be 15 minutes or 15 hours, I'm, I know what the end game is because I usually start with the beginning with the first clip. And I start my second edit will be the last clip, and from there I fill in the gaps. It's crazy. It's a crazy way of editing. Some people
2: don't do it like that, but I like to have a beginning, middle, and end.
0: Hmm. I mean, it's really important to know your process from the start.
2: I mean, that's how they say to write. Uh, some people write scripts too, is they they write the beginning and then the end. Well, yeah, you always fill you, in you should between. always know
0: your ending before you even start, because how are you gonna what are you gonna be writing towards? You're just gonna try to find your ending along the way. I mean, that might work for some people, but for me personally. You always want to have your ending set in mind because that's what you're building towards. So it work the same way.
2: The only people I can think of offhand that I've heard write non-linearly like that is um, the Cohen brothers. I think I remember them saying one time that they just write a scene and then a scene. Yeah, that's another way to look at it, yeah. Connect them together.
0: I mean, there's some people that can write scenes and then they, you know, put them together over time of like other projects and you can eventually build a project just based on snippets from other things you've worked on. Mm -hmm. So like, I've always heard, like, if you want to like build a script or whatever, if you have an idea, but you don't have a place for it, just kind of write it down and keep it in a box. Yeah. And then you can kind of like say, like, I'm having trouble with this part of the movie. You can scroll through your scenes and be like, oh, I could use this now. Yeah, So
2: definitely.
1: Okay. Usually with writing and I I kind of, minored in screenwriting, screenwriting at SVA, and I took two years of writing. Um, the process for me, and everybody's process is different, but it's all about like understanding your characters. And usually my characters always guided me to what the ending will be. Not that I determine what the ending will be, it will be based on what the characters are sort of pushing me to determine what the ending will be. You know what I mean? Like I know who my main character, my main character is my protagonist, the antagonist from there I kind of just let them kind of hang out in my head and kind of develop a story based on who they are and what, what point in their story am I writing? Like, you know, what point in their lives am I writing their story at? You know what I mean? And from there, like it'll, they allow me to develop what the ending will be not like for shock value, like M night Shyamalan, like the servant. Oh, here we go. Bullshit ending. You know, if you guys <laughs> saw that on Apple, Apple TV. um, Yeah. I mean, I'm not that type of writer. I would never encourage that. Like, Oh, for shock value, have a bullshit ending. It's all about the characters that drive you to the ending. You know what i mean and from there you could craft the ending to be either shocking or not shocking or something that's um has a proper resolution or not but your characters need to be the ones that drive you to the ending not you you know and i think that's the most organic way of writing as a screenwriter and that's it's tough to teach that in like 16 weeks because character development is only part of the writing process you know so i spent like a whole semester developing characters and for you guys, if you took screenwriting, I remember you took screen—not you didn't take screenwriting with me with with Zippe, right? Yeah, I took it with her. She, she was excellent in developing characters because she understood the value of characters from a thea- hmm. from a theatrical perspective. Yeah, you know? she was
0: great. I really enjoyed that class. She's probably the perfect person to teach that class because, like you said, she's just very versed in story and building characters. Mm-hmm. She she was also like very heavy on like comparing to to characters that we saw in films already. Like she. Was that part of your curriculum? Did you build that curriculum where she had just watch a bunch of films and try to get that sort of?
1: She built off what I had, but I told her like, look, you have a theater background. Run with that. Like, don't don't take what I learned from SVA in terms of the mechanics of screenwriting. Nobody's writing is perfect. But what's really what's really going to make or break in terms of developing a script is character development. So she took the, she understood that and her eyes lit up. And I was like, yeah, just run with that. Your theater background
0: is excellent for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever take that class? Good stuff.
2: I never did.
0: Yeah, because you're more of you're just doing doing classes just for just to take them, right?
2: That was basically it. Yeah, just I wanted to expand my knowledge base. Mm-hmm. Are you coming back, Nick? I might. I haven't ruled it yeah. out. All right,
0: make him come back. You need to learn <laughs> from this man.
2: I've learned a lot from this man.
0: This man taught me sixty percent of what I know.
1: <laughs> take one oh eight, like the editing class. We'll watch a bunch of weird
2: shit. All right, I'll think about it.
0: Yeah, and make like a really, really bizarre like left field music video because he'll really love it because I know you like that really artsy, like experimental.
1: (laughs) For 108, it's all about editing, but it's like the last project is uh, a non-narrative experimental film because the second half of the semester, we're talking about like a lot of experimental films, experimental cinema from like uh, the early 1900s or early 20th century until like the 1990s. So we look at that scope of different like techniques that were that influenced modern cinema cinema through ex- the, you know, the experimental form. So students are creating some weird shit.
0: Hmm. I
2: like weird shit.
0: Don't we yeah. all? All right, Mark, we won't keep you too much longer. We usually do this for about an hour. So I know you have, oh, a cool. you have a life to go live. So cool.
1: I appreciate the time guys, man. I, I've been looking forward to this. I'm also doing another one with uh, Chris Kelly and, and Steve. So, oh man.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to, We'll Have to listen to that, yeah. We, uh, I was on their podcast like a week ago, so yeah, they're uh, they're really good to talk to.
1: Hopefully, I could join you guys on episode maybe 40, 45. Let's do that, let's do this again, yeah. Right. We definitely will, maybe a spring training recap, full season, maybe <laughs> definitely. Nice. yeah. We'll I'll
0: definitely have you on again sometime, Mark. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, right, do you have anything guys. to plug at all? Anywhere no, we plug, no, no, nothing no, to plug?
1: No, I'm low key, man. I, I just know
0: can... you're low key right now, so.
2: I'm, I'm low key mode right now, so he was now, just talking about being humble all day. I know. I'm just saying. Stuff. I mean, come on.
0: Sometimes you got to plug a little bit. You got to brag sometimes. So. Okay.
1: Shout out to Matt. Shout out to Nick. You know, you guys are amazing, <laughs>
0: Thank um, you.
1: amazing, amazing for this for episode number 22. Shout out to you guys, man. Thanks. Keep this up. Let's get get up to 50. I definitely want to be on uh, one of these episodes in the near future. Football season. What about that? All right,
0: sounds like a plan. If we even have a football season,
1: yeah, we'll have, we'll
0: have one. We'll have one. Yeah.
2: We'll, we'll yeah. have an NFL season in a definitely in a bubble.
0: He should join yeah, our. We, he should be in our fantasy league.
2: You should be in our fantasy should league. Out. Yeah, let me know.
1: I haven't played in a long time, but yeah. I get I get mad though. I like every <laughs> like I get so invested in that. It's like not even funny, man. Yeah. Like I don't enjoy games because of it.
0: Mm. Yeah. I just want
1: to sit down and watch a Giants game. Like eventually, like, Giants eventually winning some
2: somehow.
0: They've won like two they've won like two championships in the last 10 years. Like what more do you want? I mean,
2: I just want Joe Woodard uh. <laughs> to lose the fantasy league again. Yeah, because that was hilarious.
0: Yeah, I love our the guy who was the commissioner of our our fantasy league ended up finishing last. Oh wow. Me being the one who knows nothing about football finished second to last, but I was proud that I didn't I didn't uh, finish last.
1: You gotta I was, get
2: your football knowledge up,
0: man. No, I'm, I have I have zero football knowledge compared to my vast baseball knowledge.
2: I was just proud that I took Woodard out in the playoffs because this yeah. guy bragged all year that he had the best team and he was going to easily win. And then in the first round, I beat him.
0: Yeah. And then the guy who literally didn't even care about it ends up having the best record. Didn't Tim have the best record? I think so. Yeah. So. Yeah. Tim,
2: who doesn't watch football at all, yeah. who auto drafted his team.
0: Wonderful. All right, Mark, you have a good rest of your day. Um, good luck with uh, the school next week. I don't even know. How is that even going to work? I mean, right now, are you going to tell the kids to just make quarantine films? Yeah,
1: no. Um, We're showing up on campus. I'm probably one of, uh, it's only 15% of the faculty who will be on campus. Yeah. So the campus is going to be a ghost town. The way I'm operating everything, I'm if I have a class of 15, I'm splitting up groups of uh, seven or eight into two and doing like kind of like a and b days um it'll be difficult for like a once a week class um so i'm trying to figure out how to sort of manage that and do like have one class or one group of students in one room the other group in another room and i'm kind of like in one room live streaming somehow yeah um yeah i'm kind of like one of the guinea pigs but i'm cool with it you know if i die just name name harriman after me you know of course
0: (laughs) i'm still thinking that you should have a building name after you current say a hall would be a great idea i agree you
2: You do (laughs) dope. Is uh is my buddy Jr. in any of your classes this semester?
1: Jr. Yeah, Jr.'s is a he's he's working himself to a legend legend status. I like mm. him.
2: Like that's great. One I haven't I haven't seen him in in too long. We gotta hang out again.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you should get him on the show when I'm on there because him, him and I have a ban- like an ongoing banter. I haven't seen him since the the quarantine, but um yeah he he's definitely um he he
0: brings life to that program.
1: You yeah. Know?
2: So he always did.
0: As much life as I brought?
1: It's like you and like the other 20 people in the program that were there in 2016, 2017, just him by himself brings
2: that energy. Wow. That's how,
1: like, yeah, he, wow. he brings that charisma and like, we're talking about Jr. right? Jr. Yeah. Jr. Yeah, just Jim, a super right?
2: super personable guy, super friendly, yeah. super cool. I like to
0: hear it. Yeah, I like to hear it.
2: Have you? I don't know if I've ever introduced you to him. We'll we have him all. on the
0: podcast yeah. one week, and we'll see. He, yeah,
2: he can sell he can sell ice to Eskimos. That's how good he is. <laughs> 100%. So, one hundred percent.
0: All right, sir. It's been a pleasure. Go, uh, go have ice. your dinner or do whatever. Kiss your daughters. Kiss your wife. Um, have a sodi pop. I don't know what you do, but <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Shout
1: out to the Mets, the Red Sox. Hopefully we'll see each other in the World Series one day.
0: Someday. One
2: day. 1986
0: reunion. All right, man. See you later. All right. See
2: you. Oh, that was so fun. Always fun.